2: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential
0: illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: It's Tuesday the 2nd of June. I'm Andy Brassel. He's Marcus Speller. And this is Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. Coming up, we've got a date for the return of the EFL Championship, which is huge, but not everyone's super happy about it. We also look at football's reaction to the George Floyd protests in the United States with Jaden Sancho's message in the aftermath of one of his goals for Dortmund, making headlines all over the world. We ask a young footballers more prepared to stand up and be heard on social issues. Yes, Jules, under the weather today, unfortunately, so not with us. We're sending lots of love and good vibes to her for a, a swift recovery, and I'm sure you'll join us in uh, echoing that, Ramblers. So, we've got um, Marcus Speller, who's gallantly stepped in. It's great to have you here, Marcus. How are things?
3: Oh, hello, Andy. I- I'm doing very well, thanks. It's lovely to to chat to you. Shame about Jules. Uh, but sure she'll be uh, back and better than ever very, very soon. But yeah, pleasure to be here. And
2: well, she has put us in the awkward position of me being in your chair and you being in my chair. We've got a bit of furniture <laughs> confused. This is not normally the way it rolls in the mailbag, is it? Um, but no. it's been a busy week in football and we had confirmation on Sunday night of the return of the championship. And you love a bit of championship. I know that for sure.
3: Very much so, Andy. Yeah, I do like the championship. My, my team, Fulham, are down there, and I've, I've been seeing Fulham a lot this season. And the championship—it's a—it's a great league. Yeah, we we can all agree. And there's been a lot of chat, of course, from Championship sides about whether you know it'll come back and, and so on and so forth. Because much of the attention has been on the Premier League for obvious reasons. It's it's the big football league in this country, of course, and uh, and around the world. But we shouldn't forget about the Championship and, and certain sides have been very much uh, or very vocal in in what they think, you know, like Leeds United and so on and so forth. But there have been some other sides, uh, of course, like QPR, uh, who have reacted uh, quite strongly to uh, this information that we heard that the Championship will be back uh, on the 20th of June, Andy.
2: Yeah, they have. And uh, we thought we'd get an expert to see us across it all. So I spoke earlier to Ian Danter, who's Talk Sports lead commentator for the championship and uh, for the EFL. Um, we started uh, by asking him if there was any significant doubt for him that the championship would return at some stage.
4: Well, I, I think, Andy, I, I, there seemed to be the, the, the collective bargaining of the Championship seemed a little more unified than it has been, certainly in League One, the division below, where there's there's all sorts of shenanigans going on there. Um, League Two appears to be fairly unified in what they want to do. But with the Championship, I think the main problem has come since this announcement that June the 20th is the restart date and there's two or three clubs who have been suddenly you know caught off guard it seems by the EFL's announcement QPR being one Stoke City being another uh and Charlton uh, very unhappy at, at the speed with which it's it's being brought back uh, I think everybody wanted to complete the season I I just think that those clubs uh, didn't want it to be quite as soon as June the 20th for a restart I think even one week would have placated Mark Warburton and QPR but that doesn't seem to be the case. This appears to be the, the way things are. But I, generally speaking, I think that the intention has is, is certainly been from the Championship to try and get things done.
2: So you talked about the, the different needs of um, the Championship compared to the other sections of the EFL, the League 1 and League 2. Um, how much of a challenge do you think it's been for Rick Parry and the EFL to deal with all of this, given their very different needs and their very different stances on whether the season should continue or, or not.
4: I think Rick Parry has, has actually uh, come out of this with uh, a great deal of credit because the EFL generally has come in for an awful lot of criticism for the way they've handled and are still handling uh, disciplinary issues. You look at the Sheffield Wednesday mm-hmm. ongoing uh, you know, points deduction potential that, that Sheffield Wednesday could get. And how long it's taken to get a hearing for these accusations of, you know, about the Chancery group and purchasing the stadium and whatnot. And you think back to last season and the sheer length of time it took for Birmingham City to get their nine point deduction for their you know, uh, pr- uh, profit and sustainability issues that they were banged to rights for. But it seemed to take an eternity for the EFL to get a hearing and, and get everything cleared up. And in the midst of all this, Rick Parry's come in as a chief executive. And let's not forget, we're in a time in English football where this is, there's such a state of flux, not even disregarding the pandemic for a moment. You know, we've been looking at Richard Masters coming in as the Premier League chief exec. What's going on at the PFA? Is Gordon Taylor going to lose his seat? You know, the, the FA and the EFL. The, you know, the, there's there's room at the top for, for, for new people to come in and try and exert their authority. And I think Rick Parry has a certain calm authority about him. He's certainly not a confrontational figure, Andy, I don't think. Um, and he's trying to pull these these all these different factions together. And the self-interest is evident in any division, in any country, when uh, a pandemic has reared really its head and you're trying to get a restart and some want the season null and voided, some want just a playoff campaign. Uh, I think he's been relatively skillful in the way that he's... He's he's kept twenty four very very different clubs kind of unified. I don't, it'd be impossible to have this utopian vision where everything goes along with everything he says at this time. But I think he's he's done a pretty good job, Andy.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, when you talk about the different needs of of the clubs, even in the championship, I mean that's something we've really seen in in League One the most. We've got some enormous clubs that want to get out of that, including. I guess Sunderland and Portsmouth, and for that reason, they don't want to um, the season to end for that that reason, and and to miss out. Um, but if we talk specifically about the championship, mm. is that diversity? You, you talk about the the problem because you know it's sort of front loaded by teams who are given everything and risking everything in some cases to get themselves back in. Um, the Premier League whereas if you look at we'll come to Barnsley in a minute but in, in the case of say um, QPR and and Stoke and Hull were one of the first teams to come out I think the first team to come out and say we don't want the, the the season to resume yeah does it feel for them like they're they're kind of going through the motions at great cost if they if, if they can't really do anything with the rest of the season
4: well the, the thing with the championship is there are so few teams in it who have no experience of the Premier League. There are so few, I mean, you know, Luton, Luton Town spring to mind immediately and, and Preston and Bristol City but and, and Millwall. But apart from that, most teams in the Championship have spent at least one season as a Premier League club. And, and I include Barnsley in that. And that does bring, Andy, a, a certain sense of entitlement, whether that entitlement comes from the boardroom or whether it comes from the stands or even from management you know that they, they have this thing if they, if, if a manager like Stendhal takes a job at barnsley he's informed this is what happened when you know neil Redford's, uh barnsley team got to the premier league and that brings its own pressures i think uh, and you look at a team like hull city who've you know in danger of sliding into the the third tier they've had their 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 glory days in relatively recent times as a Premier League side. That's a clear case to me of, of of self-interest. And and the Alarm family has not covered itself in glory in many aspects of football club ownership, Andy. I think it's fair to say since they've been in charge of the Tigers. So you, you, you look at each individual case of those that are, shall we say, complaining about the return of the championship. And the only one that... that Interest me in terms of the the, the sheer uh, well volatility of the complaint is QPR who are neither one thing nor the other stuck in mid table fifty points I can't see them getting relegated I can't necessarily see them getting involved in the playoffs although they're only six points off the top six but for them to be as vociferous as they have been about not wanting to restart on June the twentieth maybe that's not quite. About self interest, so much as it is maybe just about a sense of principle. Um, and senses of principle are all too rare in football these days. <laughs>
2: Well, what, talking of principle, what about the Charlton situation? I mean, Lee Bowyer was on Talk Sport earlier this week talking about how some of his players had, had refused to play. And obviously, that's going to be a, a massive pain for him with them fighting against the drop, especially when one of them, Lyle Taylor, is the guy who scores the goals. But Well, you know him I well, of course, from
4: his t- AFC Wimbledon days, you know, and, and 11 a, goals. A, in exactly. Eleven goals in twenty two games speaks volume that you know when you're in the bottom three and you've got a guy that's got that sort of goal return, you'd be desperate to keep him. I actually thought listening to Lee yesterday on talk sports speaking about this situation, not just with Lyle Taylor but also with Chris Solly and with David Davis. I actually thought he would, he he trod a very diplomatic line um, he could see why it was that Lyle Taylor was in the, the position he felt he was in where he didn't want to risk. Uh, an injury that would scupper a, a a big move to a club because obviously this club sniffing around him he he wouldn't make this decision were he not aware that there were Premier League clubs desperate for his signature. So I, I feel a little bit for Lee Bowyer and it, it's not like he's had enough to deal with with Roland du Châtelet, Um and, and the whole <laughs> Ferrari over his contract last summer and whether he was actually a goner and then he he, he finally signs a new deal. Um, and even with de Châtelet's time being over at Charlton, it, it you know, they're still, well, they're in the brown stuff, aren't they? They're in the bottom three and he's got to try and find a way to navigate through this without, certainly, uh, I mean, Solly's a player I've admired for a very, very long time on the, on the right-hand side for Charlton. So it's going to be very, very tough for him to navigate his way through. But all he can hope is that teams like Hull City, who are just above them, continue on the shambolic run that they've been on because Hull have only got one win in 11, but yet, as you've spoken about, Andy, when I've heard you talk about the Bundesliga, the form book may have absolutely no bearing in terms of what was going on before lockdown, in terms of what happens post lockdown. You can look at Hull with one win in 11, but with a three month break, that could mean diddly squat, really. It, it, it's just how that how well prepared these players are for the restart and whether they're ready to hit the ground running
2: Ian Danter there uh, TalkSports lead commentator for the championship Mm. in the EFL which can um, sate all your championship needs when it does make its way back on June 20th Um, so that'll be interesting to to see how it all unrolls Um, what we were saying at the end there Marcus about Mm. the international excitement over the the championship (laughs) and very enthusiastic commentators the one that all always sticks in my mind. I was back in England from France by this point, but re-watching the French highlights of that Watford versus Leicester playoff game, you know, oh, where knockhart misses the penalty. Yeah. That, 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 is, that That is the most dramatic uh, end to a football match that I've ever been to. Um, uh, it was... It was extraordinary. People were jumping up and down in the in, in the in the press box. It was it, mm-hmm. it was extraordinary, and it doesn't really translate to TV in quite the same way. But when Troy Deeney, you know, scores his goal, <laughs> takes his shirt off, and jumps into that sort of moat down by where his friends and, <laughs> and family are. And from where we were sat, it just looked like he jumped and just completely disappeared into the core <laughs> of the earth. People were like, oh my God, what's happened to Joy Dini? Something terrible's happened to him. But I remember re-watching the French highlights of it and people were going mm. absolutely bonkers. It's not reasonable to say that that is... Um, your standard ending for any sort of football match but it is kind of a a reasonable window into how exciting and unpredictable the championship can be right? It really is
3: Uh, I mean when you say that about sort of incredible ends to matches and teams going for promotion and so on I remember a few seasons ago when when Middlesbrough were on the march and they were they, they came to Craven Cottage and uh, I, Fulham were 3-0 up or 3-1 up. They had, a, they had a good lead and Middlesbrough were throwing it away. They needed to win the game. And 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 they got it back to 3-all. And I was actually with a friend of mine who's a Middlesbrough fan. And the Middlesbrough fans were incredible that day. And they were spurring the team on so much. And they made this incredible comeback to 3-all with just a couple of minutes left. So absolutely incredible. I don't think Fulham had that much to play for in that particular game on, on that season. And, and the Mirrors fans are going absolutely crazy and then of course other fans, uh, the, 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 the other fans of, of, of teams who that would affect as well, you know, sort of making their voices heard elsewhere and so on and so forth. And they get it back to 3 all, and then they push forward and push forward and then Fulham, they leave the back door open and Fulham go up the other end and score and it's 4-3. <laughs> and they miss out on automatic promotion, go into the playoffs and lose the final of the playoffs uh, to Norwich 2-0 and they didn't really turn up that day and it's true there are so many twists and turns you can't take your eye off it for a moment but of course the, the nature of the championship is is that one team or two teams or three teams they can't dominate it because the team who dominates it leaves straight away so you always yeah. have this uh, rotation of, of competition and, 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 a, and the best teams in, in the league which makes it so unpredictable and so exciting
2: what I'm really interested to see uh, this season spells is how the how the playoffs unfold because mm. obviously the, the the playoffs are big in in any season and even I as someone who like detests the principle of the playoffs I, I believe the three <laughs> best teams should go up and funnily enough the last team to go up automatically in third was was Wimbledon in in 1986 mm-hmm. um having been on the other side and enjoyed getting promoted through the playoffs Um, what, three times AFC Wimbledon, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I I still think on principle it's it's wrong, but A, I understand the financial imperative and B, it is totally thrilling. With the fact that football finances are kind of flattening with the current situation in the world at the moment and due to the fact that people will be so glad to have football back, so many people will be so glad to have football back on on television. Mm -hmm. Are the playoffs going to be more intense than ever this season.
3: Yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it, to try and predict what will happen. Yeah, um, sure. I, and and I, I think it was... Um, I mean, a number of people have expressed their concerns about... Uh, the kind of fairness of things going forward. I think that, you know, Luton Luton was certainly saying that we need to make sure everything's, you know, the protocols are fair and and so on because certain clubs may come up with clever little ways to make their stadium a little bit more intimidating despite fans than other teams. So everyone should just have a level playing field. I don't know how that would play out, you know. Um, uh, Maybe, you know, Fulham have, you know, cardboard cutouts of Mitrovic everywhere in the stands or something like that, I don't know. But, um I think that you will always have the intensity with the playoffs um, and and so, I mean just looking at the table now I mean it, it's tied isn't it you know Brentford and, and Nottingham Forest on the same points you know so many teams can still nip in there how I can't teams, believe how close Millwall are I, I, yeah that yeah, completely escaped off. my
2: notice
3: yeah Yeah. same with Cardiff City as well you yeah. know to, to even Blackburn Rovers you know just three points off um, and you, we could go on but we'd get bogged down but uh, I think yourself or Luke were making the point on on the continent when the Bundesliga was coming back who will respond better to the to the conditions, and and that is very very interesting, you know, because I mean before the, the, the lockdown, you know, Preston North End had lost three league games on the on the trot. Now, that doesn't mean anything now because the, you know the form book is, as <laughs> despite was it Steve McManaman on the commentary for the Dortmund game uh, in their first game back. You know, well, Dortmund are coming into this on good form. Well, th- nobody's got any form at the moment, you know, <laughs> um, so we, we have no idea uh, what will happen, but. Yeah, I, I, I think in terms of um, the intensity of the playoffs, it's so difficult to predict because, yes, it will, but it will. It, managers will have to make sure that they drum into their players that this is the same playoffs as it is last season, the season mm. before, next season. Don't be fooled by there not being any fans there. Don't be fooled by, oh, well, let's just... Um, you know, it's less of a cauldron, whether it be home or away or anything. You have to make sure that those players know what they're doing. This is the same football. This is the same. These are the same fixtures we would have played. They just don't have any fans there. But the one team that could benefit would be my own Fulham, because let's be honest, the home <laughs> fans at the College aren't exactly
2: the most raucous, myself included, in there. So uh, they probably won't
3: be affected as, as maybe other teams
2: might be. And it's the best time to to, to play again, isn't it, in summer? Because I I received a picture uh, from a friend and colleague the the other day showing how the Riverside stand has now totally gone. Can, can you mm. imagine the gust off that in winter?
3: <laughs> well I've, I've seen, I've, I mean, I've walked down the other side of the river and I've seen sort of straight in there and it is quite the sight to behold. I think in summer that kind of cooler breeze coming off the Thames might be quite nice but yes in the winter we very much hope that that, <laughs> that stand <laughs> is, is, is up and running or at least up certainly. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, interesting what you said about the, the playoffs earlier, how the, the you know, Wimbledon were the last team to be automatically promoted in, in third. Of course, Fulham finished third in uh, the 2017-18 season and went on to win the playoffs. You know, they mm. just missed out um, two points off Cardiff in second. And I was a bit concerned. I thought that might affect Fulham's performance in the playoffs because it can be very disappointing when you go into um, the last game of the season uh, or the latter stages where you can still be automatically promoted and you miss out of course, but it didn't deter them in that season. They went on to win the playoffs and Fulham are currently third in the table as well. So it will be interesting to see how it, how it plays out certainly.
2: We have 15 out of contract, we've got six loans and um, nine of our own contracted players out. They finish in the end of June. and. Uh,
3: Unfortunately for us, three of them players have have said that they're
2: they're not going to apply.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily with me, Andy Brassel, and special guest substitute Marcus Speller, who's graciously stepped in for Jules today. Get in touch. We welcome your correspondence at Jules Bridge at Andy Brassel. Ooh, Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. And we talk about emails being antiquated, but it turns out people love them and you guys love them and we love to receive them. So uh, long may email live. Um, Now, it's been a really interesting and um, quite a kind of austere weekend in in Europe uh, with a a lot of um, headlines around uh, Jaden Sancho and the way he reacted to his first goal against um, Paderborn for Borussia Dortmund at the weekend um, revealing a message on his undershirt after removing his shirt saying justice for George Floyd. It, he wasn't the first player in the Bundesliga uh, to speak up over uh, events in the United States and states and police injustice. This weekend um, we saw Marcus Turam of Borussia Mönchengladbach taking the knee after scoring against Union Berlin and we saw um, the armband worn um, by Shalker's Weston McKenney who is himself from Texas, saying uh, justice for George when they played Werder Bremen on Saturday. Um, so earlier we spoke to Melissa Reddy, the senior football correspondent from the Independent... About her article uh, that she wrote um, today about how um, younger footballers are moving away from that old trope of just stick to football. I started by asking Melissa just how important Jaden Sancho's on pitch message was.
1: I think it's been imperative that someone with Sancho's profile has spoken out. Obviously, he's only 20, but he's the most exciting young player in football at the moment. There's a lot of attraction around him because of the clubs that are linked with him. Manchester United, for example, Real Madrid. Um, And because there's a lot of buzz around him and his performances, you know, the last few seasons for Borussia Dortmund have been so electric what he says matters. And it's not just about him speaking out. It's the moment he chooses to speak out. So he's making his first Bundesliga start since football's returned. He had a calf injury. So it's a big moment because he's starting. He scores his first goal um, of the afternoon. He reveals his shared justice for George, uh, George Floyd. Okay, so there's attention on him because obviously the Bundesliga is the only league in the world, major league, that's being shown on TV. He scored. He's chosen not to celebrate. He's chosen to unveil that message. And then he goes on to score his first career hat-trick. He becomes the first English player to do so in a major league uh, overseas for 31 years. And the first thought he has is to, you know, draw attention to Black Lives Matter. And what that's actually done is his hat-trick, this massive career moment for him, is no longer the talking point. His activism is what drew headlines. And that is major, 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 because he's chosen to detract attention away from personal accomplishment for the greater good, for for the bigger message. And I think what was also so vital over the weekend was he wasn't the only young footballer to speak out. There's been Rian Brewster, uh, Marcus Rashford, Marcus Churam. This is bravery from players who haven't even turned 23 yet. And remember... Football as a game and, and sport in general is conditioned really to be quiet, to just get on with the game. Um, you know, stick to football is the message we are consistently told, and it's even indoctrinated into the laws of the game. So for these young men to take a stand is, is courageous, but also it's empowering for the younger generation to see their idols making a stand so that they can also feel like, you know, their voice is important too and follow suit.
2: I think that's really interesting, the point that it's younger players who are are getting involved and use the examples of uh, Marcus Turan, uh, Rian Brewster, who we know has had to stand up for himself way before his time with what he's been through. Um, But what's particularly interesting about Sancho, I mean, you mentioned Marcus Turan, but in a way, it's what we expect of him. I think partly because of his his family name because you know his dad has got a, a great history of um, standing up for social justice and human rights and against racism and against classism in in France. Um, but but Sancho's different, isn't he? because I think we tend to think specifically if if we look at um, the way people, generally over not necessarily in recent years but um, certainly historically we think of um, footballers from other countries being more politically interested than English footballers so in that sense is is that why Sancho doing this is such a big deal as well
1: I think perhaps that perception is is erroneous obviously i think what we're seeing in terms of sancho uh, rashford brewster is that the younger generation are very plugged into events around the world are plugged into what's happening to people that look like them who are less privileged um you know who aren't don't have a global audience who aren't these talented megastars that are on, on big money. And sometimes actually these players get separated from their race because of their talent. And I think it's so instructive and so important that they are saying, hang on, no, this is about us. This affects all of us. We're black as well. It doesn't matter that I'm an exceptionally gifted player. Uh, I still am the race I am. Uh, what's happening in America to people who look like me still resonates with me. And and often in the past, what we've seen some superstars do is actually detach themselves from these important issues. Um, if people have been watching The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, for example, never really took a stand on on any sort of political or or social issue because. That wasn't his brand. He said out of it, O.J. Simpson is a very uh, famous case for always saying, I'm not black, I'm O.J. And yet during the trial of the century, uses his blackness then to get people on side, to get, you know, black Americans on side um, and using just the, the history of race and the LAPD to actually you know, get the not guilty verdict in in that case. So for these players, as young as they are, um, you know, already as w- we always tend to think they're pampered and, and privileged and detached and, you know, it's all bling bling and they want the nice cars and they want to all these things. But for them to show, no, we are intelligent young men. We know what's going on we feel what's going on we relate to what's going on we want to help we want to force change we want our voices to be part of this conversation is really really pivotal not just in a football sense but in a wider community sense because if they're able to speak out regardless of whatever action it will bring which can often be, uh, hampers sponsorship deals, hampers uh, future transfer moves, and may be seen as problematic or too outspoken. Um, it in it, it's an influence in terms of the laws of the game. You know, banning any sort of messaging, so there could be punishments in that regard. For them to ignore all that and think no, it's crucial that I still speak up. I think is we should all be applauding it. We should be encouraging it. We should be saying that we need to see more of it. And actually, we should be holding these sort of players in a greater light than those who choose to stay silent because it benefits their brands and stuff.
2: Now, you talked about uh, the laws of the game sort of um uh, making it difficult to to make political statements or anything that might be perceived as a, a, a political statement. Um, now, the, the DFL of um, the Bundesliga have been looking into um, these protests over the weekend. The, the head of their disciplinary committee said that. I mean, there is um, there is precedent for them to to, to use some sort of leeway, um, such as when Anthony Ujar in in twenty fourteen um, showed a message under his shirt um, in. in uh, the wake of the Eric Garner killing, and they kind of turned a blind eye to, eye to that after he was, he was he was celebrating a a, a goal for for Cologne, who he's playing for at, at the time. Um, FIFA have talked about um, showing common sense, uh, showing um, a, a bit of empathy, and maybe referees not applying the the letter of the law. Do you think this could be a real turning point for players being able to express themselves on the field or is it just a flash in the pan and is it just authority saying, with the pandemic, we've got too much to deal with at the moment, so let's just let it go?
1: I think the laws of the game in general, in in terms of that respect, needs to be reworked because you're now saying to officials and to leagues, use your own judgment on this and as we've seen with just any sort of decisions <laughs> when it's subjective different people take different viewpoints now you cannot have a referee for example deciding Sancho needs to get booked but not booking Hakimi who's also revealed the um, you know the justice for George Floyd shirt in the same sort of match there's no continuity but also you cannot have laws that tell a player what how they can express themselves when something is so emotive. Racism is not a political issue or you know, it's it's not some slogan that players are slapping. It's it's an important Disease that needs to be eradicated. You you can't tell these players that they can't feel enough about it to put messaging on their shirts. And so I think the laws of the game there definitely needs to be a reworking of that. But apart from that, I think that players that haven't been put off by the stir of them speaking out what that could what that could lead to. I think should encourage those that maybe feel like just staying maybe not silent, but just not having an opinion at all is is safe. I think they should be encouraged to see that actually no, it's it's not safe. It's not it's not okay to be quiet. It's not okay to not use your platform. It's not okay to not be an ally. Because one of the the strongest things I've seen so far is Liverpool's, you know, collective taking off the knee of the whole squad. And how that came about is, you know, Virgil van Dijk and Jenny Alden were talking about doing something and the squad said, no, we don't want our black players to stand alone. We don't want, this is not just your fight. This is our fight. It's a collective thing. And so they've done it together. and as much as it's been so brilliant to see these individuals, these young men coming out and making a statement, it's so much stronger if their teammates join in and if you know football as a whole and sports as a whole, and then the, everything has like a domino effect. Once people feel comfortable and encouraged and they feel like their message will also be heard or their opinion also matters, it just spirals and this is how you affect change. So I think if we see a greater collective uh, try in this respect with Black Lives Matter and then any other issues we have going forward, um, it it would force change in a quicker, more emphatic way.
2: Melissa Reddy there joining us from The Independent. Thanks to her for giving us some of her time. It's an issue that's been absolutely inescapable in the news um, over the weekend, Marcus. And Mm -hmm. it does, as Melissa was saying, um, represent um, a huge sea change, really. The fact that um, not just footballers are are stepping up and -hmm. and talking about a a social issue, but young footballers Mm -hmm. are doing that. How important, especially for young black British players, has it been... For, that Rahim Sterling has kind of put his head above the parapet in the last couple of years and encouraged them not to stay silent and find their voice.
3: Yeah, I think I think Sterling has received a lot of praise over his kind of words and actions in, in recent seasons, as you, as you say, and it, and, it, and it shows. I mean, he has made. You would have thought he has made a difference in. In, in the way people would conduct themselves at this time. And, and in terms of the overall feeling of what's been going on, it, you mentioned it feels a bit of a sea change. It does feel differently this time. And it feels... I mean, the, the, Melissa mentioned it herself about the whole Liverpool team doing that, that you know, the, the, the photo of them all, all going down on one knee. Mm. This does feel differently. And it is obviously long overdue. But its it's been good to see the reaction... Of, uh, of certain people and in the case of Liverpool, certain teams in the footballing community. So yeah, I we thoroughly recommend you read um, Melissa's piece on this because uh, as you can tell, you know she's very, very uh, informed and articulate when it comes to this kind of thing. Well, and other things, of course, but, but this she's um, very worth, worth listening to for sure
2: yeah strongly recommended um we're going to finish up with some of your correspondence as always and uh marcus well you've always got your hand in the mailbag so is, is there anything at the top that might be of a jules and andy persuasion uh, well, that wasn't proved, Andy, with regards to my hand being in the mailbag, but uh,
3: <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll crack on nonetheless. Uh, and I've been handed this, um, a, an email from uh, Damien, who says, uh, Hey guys, uh, uh, I have a novel idea about helping lower league teams survive during the pandemic and beyond. If next season all games have to be played behind closed doors, then why don't teams create an e- e-season ticket solution with single game tickets as well? You pay like you would with normal." with your normal season ticket or a single ticket and are given a code you put that code into a website and you can watch the games you have paid for also like a normal season ticket you can pay a little bit extra for away games I understand this won't be the same as going to the match in person Uh, as a Liverpool fan living in Ireland I don't get to go to Anfield as much as I would want but I do go and support my local team Derry City as well and I know how important match revenue is to small clubs um, so that's from uh, Damien. Uh, he he also says, uh, Jules, um, appreciate Jules isn't here, but I'm sure she'll hear this, Damien. Jules, I used to play underage football against Shane Duffy and he's as tough as he looks. So uh, it's good to have good to have confirmation on that. But with regards to the, the E-tickets and E-season tickets and, and E-tickets, what, what do you think of that? Because that's something I've not heard of. And uh, Damien might be onto something
2: well i think there's kind of a starting point for that with uh, the i follow scheme that that football uh, league clubs have and basically what it is 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 mainly aimed at expat supporters i think of, of various football league clubs and you can for i think it's a a, a tenner you can access a uh, live feed of, of, of your teams Game—it's how overseas owners watch their their teams, for for example. And um, we've got more and more of those in, in in the lower divisions now. We've seen that at Bristol Rovers, for example, in in, in the last little while. Um, what they've done for for midweek matches is they've made them accessible to fans in the UK as as, as well. So yeah. some would say the infrastructure and the precedent is there. Then again, anyone who's actually used the service would say that the infrastructure really isn't there. There's no <laughs> production value to it. Really, it's just a a one camera view, and um, yeah. you know, it's it's, it's, it's not ideal. You, you you might be better off with your mate um, with a camera phone, mm. give or take uh, the the load on four G and rights issues, which are two quite major issues when it comes to that sort of thing. <laughs> but I, I really like the idea. Um, I do wonder. We've seen um, teams in Germany, for example, have um, virtual tickets in that um, fans have contributed to uh, for, for a ticket for um, a match that's already happened. For example, you know the idea of you know we all chip in a little bit and it offers something towards the club. If we're talking about it from a purely financial s- standpoint, I'm not sure there's the level of tv production to give the supporters a a proper product now maybe people who live overseas and watch football league teams on a regular basis disagree with me and you know maybe that a lot of fans just are not bothered about that sort of stuff and 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 take anything they could get and uh, i appreciate that and if that is your view well, just get get in touch with us um, at, at the at, at the email addresses and, and, and on Twitter, as, as you know you can. Um, but, I mean, would you pay a, a tenner to watch Fulham remotely? Mm.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think if I... I mean, <laughs> you know, Fulham are owned by a billionaire, so this <laughs> is a little bit of a different situation. I think if I supported a club... Hmm. I might do i might I might well do, but I think if if it was a more pressing issue, if I thought they were going to go to the wall or something like that then then I might yeah. d- do that so I understand uh, Damien's point about lowly clubs, especially those who who really need the money um, so i I think yeah but i do I do worry about the sort of the, <laughs> the production values as you say i mean they do have cameras at all league grounds um during normal match days anyway, but that does mean in during this pandemic if you don't have fans there, you are asking a lot of people to go to work who may not want to or maybe they do i don't know so i, I yeah i it, it it's it's certainly an idea worth exploring whether it would work in practice or not I don't know, but yeah.
2: I think, I think it's is, worth exploring. Talk, talking of um, televising uh, from football league grounds, I, th- I think one thing, I mean, I, I don't think it will really come to it with um, League One looking unlikely to, to, to restart, but we are talking about the, the, the chill coming off the Thames at Craven Cottage <laughs> with, 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 with the, the, the Riverside stand no, no longer there. Mm. I think probably the coldest place in football give or take Oldham Athletic, which obviously has an an altitude advantage, Mm -hmm. would probably be the gantry at King's Meadow, which also looks quite rickety. I mean that's yeah, yeah. definitely better experienced in in summer than in in, in winter. Obviously a moot point because um, uh, Wimbledon of <laughs> to all intents and purposes um, started to to move out of of Kings Meadow as it looks as if uh, League One is coming to a close. Um, on the back of that, um, we've got one from uh, Matthew Kermode here that says. Um, Hi, Jules and Andy. Thank you, firstly, for keeping the podcast going. They're great for my evening walks. It's an absolute pleasure, Matthew. Uh, While I was out this evening, Wednesday, you were talking about the finances of football. I'm no accountant by any means, but is professional football genuinely financially sustainable? What would happen if every club was told to balance their books? Could it be done? I hear a lot of talk about how rich clubs are, but in reality, aren't most of them actually massively in debt? Um, Well, Matthew... It's funny you should ask that because when we talk about the financing of football and how it all really works, we've just re- released a Football Ramble Daily Book Club um, with yeah. me, Kate Mason, and Luke Moore, where we get into some of those issues. It's really worth reading the book as well, it will give you a whole new perspective on um football finance and how it really works and it does bring into question um the the authors bring into question whether football really does qualify as big business we're always hearing it's one of the ultimate football cliches isn't it that football is big business now nowadays Mm -hmm. um but that they put it into some sort of perspective with the corporate and commercial world and you can get an e-copy of the book for um just a couple of pounds off online retailers i would strongly recommend it and of course it's a book that evolves as well there have been several different editions of it and they sort of critique their previous work but you can hear all about that on the book club which is available on the football ramble daily feed now
4: hmm.
2: well thank you as always again for your correspondence like we said um, you can get in touch at jules breach at andy Brassel and jules and andy at football ramble daily dot com um Jules, we wish you all the best, and uh, we hope you're feeling better soon. Much love from all involved with the Ramble, but thanks so much for joining us, Marcus Speller.
3: My pleasure. My bloody pleasure, Andy Brassel.
2: And, of course, Marcus, we'll reconvene for the mailbag for Patreon.com subscribers later in the week where you can uh, pose us further questions, and we'll get it the right way round this time in in terms of who's asking and who's answering. Do you want, do
3: you want your chair back, basically? Uh, I really do, Andy. This one's not nearly as comfy.
2: It's, it's, it's difficult to reach a mailbag from that chair as well, isn't it? I, <laughs> I mean, you, you've, you've had to really almost pop your shoulder out of your socket, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate you doing that. He would do anything for you, <laughs> Ramblers. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, Jules Breach will be fighting fit for next week uh, here on Jules and Andy. In the meantime, uh, this week's Ramble Meets is me chatting to Southampton captain Pierre-Emile Hoiberg, who's absolutely fascinating on his foot. Football upbringing at Bayern and how he's evolved into a Premier League captain on the South Coast. That's it for this week. Uh, We wish you all a great week and we'll see you again next Tuesday.
0: This was a Stakhanov production. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat